Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Merry Christmas. Um, my name is Brandon Barnes. For those of you who uh, who don't know me, I'm on the elder staff or elder team here, and we are working through our Advent series uh, using this book. I don't know if you and your family have had a chance to pick it up, Dawn of Redeeming Grace, and we are in. Uh, our third week of Advent, where we're looking at the section of this book, really, that delves into the journeys of Jesus. Jesus' early life was filled with danger, was filled with uncertainty, was filled with fear. His life was one of exile to begin. Exile is commonly understood or defined as flight or banishment, barred from something native, removed from something familiar, uh, without basically your choice, right? And if we look at the effects of being exiled, the repercussions from those who have been interviewed or have, have talked through it are both physical and mental. To those who have been exiled, they describe it as a sense of confusion, a sense of disharmony, uh, a sense of insecurity, oppression, of guilt, particularly those families who have been separated. Some have left and some are left behind. Worry. And there's no way in a million years that I could possibly relate in the same ways as someone like that has recently been, you know, have fled from their homes in Ukraine or have fled Afghanistan or Somalia or Syria or uh, right now in Haiti, those trying to get into the Dominican Republic for safety. There's no way. But I wonder, I wonder if there are those here this morning that are feeling some level of mental or emotional exile from some kind of rapid change that's taken place in your life, a change that's caused you to doubt the certainty of what you once knew, challenging what you thought once was stable. And I wonder if there are many here this morning reeling from that situation, feeling confusion, feeling disharmony, feeling insecurity, depression, guilt, worry, and so in Matthew's gospel account of the journeys of Jesus' life, I think he wants to show us a savior that can lead us through even the most difficult journeys we might be facing now or that lie ahead of us. Let's pray and then let's open up God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God that came near. Lord, we're reminded that uh, in our worship this morning. Lord, you lit the flame. This is your doing. You are present and near to us, I just ask that as we open your word now, that we would see that clearly. We would understand um, the sacrifice you made to be with us. We thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So the, so the uh, book we're about to read, uh, for those of you who may be new to the Bible, it's called Matthew. Matthew is the author of this narrative. He was a Jewish convert. He was called by Jesus out of a profession that was much hated by the Jews, which was tax collecting. And so the journey of Matthew's own personal life to Christ was one of radical change and transformation. And so Matthew writes this specific testimony to his Jewish contemporaries, trying to compel them towards belief. He's trying to get them to understand that what the scriptures have been talking about is fulfilled in the Messiah. And he does that in a couple ways. One, by talking a lot about fulfilled prophecy. He uses the word fulfilled more than uh, the other gospel writers. But he also does it by sharing more Old Testament passages within his narrative than any others. He does that 29 times. Just about every other page, he's referencing something in the Old Testament to help them see that this is the Messiah they've been looking for. And so we pick up this morning in Matthew chapter 2, 
Uh, Gary covered off in first week. So if, again, if you're just new coming to this Matthew chapter one, you got a lot about genealogies. Gary talked about that a few weeks ago. Last week, uh, Jeremy talked specifically about sort of the early family dynamics, Joseph and Mary. Uh, and then today we're talking about this, uh, this time of exile, this time of, of sort of uh, danger. And then Zach's going to circle back on Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve. He'll talk about that, uh, the wise men and the magi. So let's dig in. Uh, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 2, 13 through 23, and I'm going to break it up into three parts. And the reason I'm doing this is because I want us to see in Matthew 2, 13 through 15, we see a real sense of God's presence. Matthew 2, 16 through 18, we see his protection. And then in Matthew chapter 19 through 23, we see God's promises. So the three Ps, I kind of stole this from Gary. Uh, Gary loves to do the, the alliteration stuff. I'm taking that this morning. So let's start in Matthew 2, 13 through 15. We're picking up the story right after the Magi had left. So here we go. If you've got your Bibles, please follow along because I kind of like weave through these verses through the whole thing this morning. 13 through 15, when they had gone, the Magi, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled, there's that word, listen for it this morning, what the Lord had said to the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. The first observation we make here in the truth of the journey of humanity as a whole is that we can't save ourselves. God intervenes with his presence. An angel appears to remind Joseph that God's presence is near. And I suspect this would be one of those journeys that maybe Joseph would look back on in life and recall and remember how close God seemed and how close God was in that. Not to mention he was with his son. The truth applies in our journeys and our difficulties in life as well, though. In fact, the writer of Hebrews reminds the other church that the ministry of our Savior actually includes angelic hosts, watching over his people, protecting his people from their spiritual enemies. Hebrews 1.14, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? And I can't answer all your questions about angels and how they intervene and at what point but we shouldn't be surprised by a God that might supernaturally intervene in lives in specific times and specific ways. Humans need intervention. We can't protect ourselves from ourselves. The important point, though, whenever we speak of angels, they are working for our Savior. The author of Hebrews is constantly reminding the people, Jesus is better than. They work for Jesus and always pointing us to Jesus, our true Savior. We're never to worship them. But what's encouraging is that God is present in our stories as well. Matthew's demonstrating that God is in all of the messy details of our lives. Matthew quotes the prophet Isaiah as well here as we see, where we see this line, out of Egypt I called my son. That comes from Hosea chapter 11, 1. Uh, specifically, uh, Hosea says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. That prophecy was uttered five to 600 years before the birth of Jesus. And Matthew is saying, God's been planning this route all along. This shouldn't catch us off guard. God has been planning this route. He's moving, he is near. And Matthew reminds his readers that in order to look forward, a lot of times we've got to look backwards to see what God has done, to see that God is faithful, that he is present. 
But I think Matthew's also really trying to connect some dots for his Jewish listeners. Jesus would go into Egypt for a time in order to bring about the exodus that we truly need. Matthew's being very obvious about some connections to the Old Testament where Egypt was this place of preservation. If you recall the story of Joseph, Joseph is sold by his brothers into slavery. And as he's in Egypt, he gains the favor of the Pharaoh. And when famine sets in because of his place of honor with the Pharaoh, he's able to, to build these storehouses of grain and he's actually able to bring his family there and Egypt becomes this place of protection. But as this family would grow and the nation of Israel grew up, it became a place of enslavement by the Egyptians. And ultimately Moses would be called to bring about the exodus that God would orchestrate through Moses. And so these feasts and festivals that the, that the Jews would hold would be established to remember those key moments in Jewish history. They knew this inside and out. And so the connections to Christ were meant to be obvious by Matthew. God would send his very own son Jesus through the same paths to make it crystal clear the entire, entire narrative of the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus, the ultimate son who's gonna go into Egypt for a time of preservation, but he'd come out to restore us to himself, to free us from the slavery of our sin, to bring about the exodus and the exile of our hearts and our relationships with God. Do you believe that God is in your journey? Do you see God in your story, in your suffering this morning? You are never closer to your savior. How can I say that with confidence? Psalm 23 is a great reminder from David. David singing to himself, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. How could he arrive at that? Because he had passed through the valley of the shadow of death and God was with him. It was through struggle, it was through the trust first that he could arrive at God's goodness and mercy. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Look at the lengths that God went to bring you a savior. We see his presence in exile, but we also see that God is moving this humble little family around to protect them. Let's move to the next passage. Verses 16 through 18, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. Then what he said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice in, is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And you say, Brandon, I don't see the protection in this passage. Follow along with me here. First point, God uses all kinds of people in our lives to carry us along in our journeys. The Magi were drawn by God to a place of usefulness and protection. Outsiders that were willing to go miles and miles and miles to find the Messiah. Herod and his religious leaders basically had him in their backyard and had no interest in going to find him themselves. And again, Zach will address this more in detail on Christmas Eve. But my point in this passage is that God brings people into our lives for reasons that we don't always understand, but we need to hold our arms open to them. I think about the years that we led small groups at this church, and any small group leader here can attest to the fact that when you bring a lot of different people together that, you know, you don't have these shared backgrounds, it's amazing the providential nature of how God works to show you their stories are like puzzle pieces that all fit together. God is using us and he weaves us together through the power of his Holy Spirit. And when the word is opened, we come together. And, and those, 
those communities of people become a source of protection for ourselves. And so we see that God brings very different people, different socioeconomic status, race, age, politics. He brings them together. And the Magi is a great example of that. Protection by God comes through his working in all kinds of people. But Jesus was also protected in exile while Herod was left extremely frustrated. Herod is this important element to the history of this narrative, but also to a picture of what exile apart from God looks like. Herod and his family line are these prominent figures in the New Testament. Herod 1 is there at the birth of Jesus, as we just see, but three of his other sons will intersect with various different parts of the early church in multiple different ways. We see John the Baptist intersect. We see Paul intersect. And then we see Jesus at his trial intersect with different parts of Herod's family. These Herods had at best a mild curiosity about Jesus. At worst, a sense of threat that resulted in violence and violent decisions. Herod and his family never experienced the security that comes from an anchored identity in God. They lived their lives slaves to insecurity, slaves to the lure of power, slaves to the fear of death. Herod and his family did not feel that security that comes from knowing a deep love of God. And it takes him on a violent rampage at the cost of many families in Bethlehem. And we see Matthew quotes this other passage in the Old Testament that comes from Jeremiah 31, 15. He says, a voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Matthew's using this for a couple of reasons. One, the story of Rachel weeping refers to Genesis chapter 35, where we see Jacob, who's the father basically of, of the Israel nations, the tribes of Israel, and Rachel is one of his wives, and Rachel will have two of his sons, and she dies in childbirth for the second one. So this, this is a recollection to her mourning and weeping over the fact that she won't see her, un, she won't be able to spend time with her son as she dies. And there's great sadness and tragedy of not seeing it. And it makes sense to the exact moment as we sense the grief and agony in Jerusalem. And I'm gonna struggle to, to share this this morning, but I can't help it's not lost on me that 10 years ago, December 14th, was the anniversary of Sandy Hook, the Newtown shootings. And this passage will always have a certain poignancy because it happened around Christmas time. These tragic moments in the history of our country and our state, these children that were 7, 8, would be you know, 17, 18 years old today. And our prayer should be with these families in this time of year for sure. But we see history is littered with violence. And would that serve to point us to the need of a savior and appreciate that God wouldn't even spare his very own son from this violent world? We need him more than ever. To my earlier point, man can't save himself from himself. He actually needs to be saved from himself. And that's what we see happening here in the way that God is navigating his son. But the second reason this passage is referenced has to do with this place, Ramah. What is Jeremiah saying here? Why does he, he quote that? A voice is heard in Ramah. Well, this is considered the, the spot where Israel would begin, their, um, it would begin their journey into exile. So Jeremiah the prophet is writing about um, and giving these prophecies to the nation of Israel to let them know essentially that God is divorcing them. 
saying, you have, you have betrayed me, and I'm sending you off into exile in Babylon. And so it's a sad point. It's a sad moment. And so we see kind of a dual meaning here of the sadness that's taking place. But the hope that is in these verses is there and clear and should be clear to the Jewish listeners of the time as well. Jeremiah 31, just a few verses down from this one, says, but the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. And he goes on to say, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will forgive their wickedness and remember it no more. And so you can see in God's plan of, of protection, there's the start of something new. There's hope. He doesn't leave us in despair. Sorrow is not the end. The sorrow is pointing to a spark that is lit, a, a spark lit in a small and dirty stable, a spark that will grow to a flame and will grow to a church that is impenetrable because of the foundation it's laid on. Protection for the believer then is knowledge and security that nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. And God's plans will not be thwarted. So the point to us, are we defiant like Herod in exile? Or have we trusted in God's good purposes? Do I trust in my own protection or the eternal protection of a savior? What is my legacy? Herod's legacy to his to his sons, was a failure? Do I believe God is doing something new in me or my community through my difficulties? Do I see those redemptive moments in my life that God is moving? With this, we move to our third part of our set, our set passage here, 19 through 23. So we've looked at uh, the presence of God. We've looked at his protection. Now we look at a promise. So 19 through 23, after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and they went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. We see once again this orchestration by God to protect and preserve this family. And we see that they'll take up residence in Galilee, specifically the small town Nazareth. And this is where we understand Jesus will grow into manhood. And Jesus would then become what was foretold and fulfilled, the third use of the word fulfilled just in this section alone. And he would become a Nazarene. And so I want to look at a couple aspects of this passage that I think can bring us hope in God's promises. The hope and timing of his fulfilled prophecy is one area I want us to look at, and I want us to see the significance of this specific Nazarene. So first, the word fulfilled. Again, Matthew is weaving all kinds of Old Testament references and prophecy into his testimony. How might this provide us with some promise? Well, early in the year, I read this great book, um, highly recommend it. It's called uh, Reading the Times by Jeffrey Bilbro. And it's a fascinating take on how better, if Christians better understand how to read time and understand time, it actually helps us as we process through the news cycles. Instead of becoming angry and enraged all the time about certain things, we can actually see what's happening. 
okay? And he does this by digging in a couple of ways in, in how the Greeks saw time. And the, t the Greeks saw time in two ways. They, they looked at it and measured it through chronos, which is the quantitative measure of time, and kairos, which is the qualitative time, measure of time. Chronos is that thing, if you've got a watch, you've got a chronograph on your watch, kind of makes sense. It's the minutes, the hours, the days, the weeks. It's the time we almost feel pressure by. If you're a man in America like myself, you know that average lifespan is 80 years. That gives me about 30,000 days. I just turned 50. I've used up 60% of them already, right? It's going fast, so I start to feel that. But Kairos tracks time through major events. So 2020, we would look at, at 2020 as the year of the pandemic, right? Or you might look at fall of 2004 as the year that, you know, the Red Sox curse was broken finally. Kairos time to the Greeks was a moment of possibility. A perfect opening in time when they believed the Greek gods would shoot an arrow just through that time slot and something big would happen. Something exciting was just on the horizon. They were waiting or looking to take advantage of the kairos, the moment of possibility. When would things change up and shift around? I want to give you one more term. I know we have some doctors and scientists in the room because I was already corrected at the first service for pronouncing this the incorrect way, but it's systole. Systole is a word used to describe a regular heart contraction. It's necessary to drive blood outward from the heart. It's a contraction that prepares an organism for movement. It's essential to sustaining life, but it's also a word that's actually associated with time. Systolic or systolated is a way to suggest that time is contracted. It's gathered together, it's tensed, it's ready for action. The days and minutes of life the chronos lead us to anticipate events, kairos, that will somehow bring change. And systolated is this cool word, which basically is to say the events are lining up and they're ready to spring forward. Where am I going with this? Matthew and his use of fulfilled is saying the time we've been waiting for is now. The moment of possibility is now. Everything leading up to the birth of Christ were moments in time building and building momentum for just this time. This, this contraction is driving out from the heart of the Father, his son, Jesus. And it's a beautiful image. Galatians 4.4. 4. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. Romans 5.6. At just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God's promises are sure his words through his prophets will be fulfilled. The promise is that it brings hope. So maybe you're sitting here this morning kind of figuring out, okay, he's talking a lot about a time. He's clearly a midlife crisis. He just turned 50. It's very true. Counting the days, you might be sitting here like me, counting the days till you're done with something hard or difficult in life for me, right? Retirement. Counting the days until you're done with a school exam. Counting the days until your kids are out of the house. Counting the days till you finally get some financial freedom. Or maybe the days are going too fast. You want to have a child and you're feeling like you're getting older and older. Conversely, maybe you're waiting for that big moment, that big Kairos moment to break into your life. You're looking for the one thing that will bring you meaning. You're waiting for that big political shift to occur where it will all be okay. That one relationship will bring you some kind of sense of purpose. That big dream in life that if the stars just align just right, you could take hold of it. And I want to encourage you this morning in the tension that we live in, that time brings to us. All human possibility is anchored 
in the gospel of Jesus Christ. All human possibility is anchored in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why do I say that? Because God's folding these events around time and his purpose is this. It's as simple as this, folks, that you know him. Why? Why? Because he wants to restore to you the deepest longing of your time-bound heart, which is by giving him eternal life to you. He wants to give you eternal life. He knows you're time-bound. He knows we're time-bound. In Christ, you have been given the promise that whatever place of exile you feel time has put you in, right here and now, you have the fullness and the assurance of eternity with God to have those longings fulfilled perfectly. The good things in life are shadows of what's to come. We can rest in time now because God in Christ bought us the fullness and eternity in his son Jesus. Because Jesus entered our time-bound world. All human possibilities anchored in Jesus. Ephesians 1, 9 through 10. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed and listen, to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Kronos and Kairos brought together in Christ. One last point I just want to close with on this section. We see he went and lived in a town called Nazareth, so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Netzar is the Hebrew word translates for branch or shoot, and it's traced back to the origin of the word Nazareth, meaning Matthew's making very clear connection here to the prophecies of Isaiah. So once again, he's looking backwards, he's helping the Jews fill in the blanks here, he's saying, Isaiah 11:1 tells us this, tells us that Jesus was going to come to Nazareth. How do I know that? A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots a branch will bear fruit. Isaiah 53, 2, he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground, is pointing to this town called Nazareth. But Nazareth as a city was considered a low place. Both socially and morally at the time of Jesus' birth and formative years, we know this almost comically from a passage in the book of John where Philip is trying to get one of his friends, Nathaniel, to come meet this Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel's like, nothing good comes from Nazareth. Like it's a funny retort. But the promise to us is this. Jesus didn't come to take the position of power and esteem that the world holds true. Jesus didn't come from the best schools. Jesus didn't come from the safe neighborhoods. Jesus didn't grow up with all the right friend groups. The exile of Jesus and his family that they experienced took them to this town or this village of uncertainty, a town that gave them unfavorable status in the culture, the wrong side of the tracks. It was no honor to be called a Nazarene. He took the title. God sent his son not to the places of power. God sent his son and navigated the paths of history and the events of his very own son's birth to lead him to the darkest of places, places looking for just a little glimmer of hope. God's word says in Isaiah 57, 15, I live in a high and lowly, holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God condescends to us at the manger. God has pleaded all of time as we know it around this event that's given us this savior 
that enters our place of exile and he says, take my hand, let me walk you through it. Let me walk you through it. I've been there and I will be there with you now. Where are you at this morning? What's your place of exile this morning? What's that sense of disharmony you feel, that apathy or numbness you feel as you yourself feel out of place physically or spiritually? Maybe you're shocked at, at a horrible decision that a coworker made or a family member made, a decision so odd that you can't really find yourself squared away with this person anymore. You feel exiled from them. I just turned 50, aging has again got me feeling like I'm one doctor's appointment away from some bad news for some reason. Maybe you're already in the bad news and that's leaving you feeling exiled from your own body. But God in his infinite goodness and in his perfect unfolding of time came to you. Matthew's narrative reminds us of three things. We have the presence of God. God got involved in the events of the world, navigating his son through treachery, through danger, through evil, and he wants to be involved in your life as well. And he gives us the power of the indwelling spirit. If you're a believer here today, you have that power, John 16. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you. A guide isn't someone far away. A guide is someone that's near. Matthew says God provides protection. Even when tragedy is all around us, Jeremiah's words point to the eternal protection we have from sin. I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. It should be of great comfort to us. We are protected in our greatest need. This devotional book we've been working through, one of my favorite terms that he uses in here, he said, God bruises those he uses. So many biblical characters attest to a period of exile in their life in order to be used. Jacob. Joseph, Moses, Peter, Paul, all experienced difficult lessons, but God's never more close and protective of those receiving discipline. He says, Hebrews 12, 11, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. I love that word, trained. Training's a great word. A, co a good coach, a good mentor is someone that's near you, but pushing you pushing you through hard things. Matthew says, finally, you have God's promise. In the birth of Jesus, in the life of Jesus, in the death of Jesus, in the resurrection of Jesus, you have a God that has folded the events of time around an eternal perspective. He has fulfilled and he continues to fulfill. But finally, we look to the cross. That's where our Savior willingly took the wrath and punishment we deserved you know, exile, if you think about it, exile is forced. Jesus went into exile for us. Willingly. And not further than that, Jesus went further into exile than any one of us could ever imagine on the cross in his separation from the Father. A place of eternal glory. I want to acknowledge as we close that while we have this presence, we have this protection, we have this promise here and now, in Jesus' birth, this is not our final home. This is not our final home. We're kidding ourselves if we think that we can make this place our home. Our yearning is real. Our struggles are real. We are awaiting our final exodus. We're just passing through, everybody. 
of the way singer-songwriter John Foreman says it. He says, until I die, I'll sing these songs on the shores of Babylon, still looking for a home in a world where I belong. Where the weak are finally strong, where the righteous right the wrongs, I'm still looking for a home in a world where I belong. And then he says this, and when I reach the other side, I want to look you in the eye and know, know that I've arrived in a world where I belong. We now await on these shores, peering towards our true home, but we're rolling up our sleeves, church. We're rolling up our sleeves to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly, and watch with hope and confidence for God's return. When he's going to gather us all to himself, as promised, the moment where Kairos and Kronos are fulfilled and they take us home free of fear of exile, fear of death, fear of danger, an advent, Advent chases us to the manger to remind us of this great truth. Revelations 21.3, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, the exile in our hearts can only be healed by you. You came, you entered our pain to bring us out of our sin, your forgiveness and grace are radical, a gift so undeserved. Let us not be hardened by sin in the world, but rather gather around the manger this season where all human possibility is anchored in this precious gift of eternal life. It has to be taken hold of. Our sin must be repented of. We must come to the end of ourselves in order to find you. And I just pray this morning that those are maybe still clinging as Herod did to their own power, to their own strength to do life, would relent and would trust in you. We thank you for this time together. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen.